All right, welcome in to the Doomer Optimism podcast. This is Nate, Tornado Nate here with Ashley, and today we are interviewing the great Greg Gunthorpe. Um, Greg is a uh, rural um, um, Indiana farmer, um, and so this kind of goes with my theme of Nate interviewing Midwestern farmers that he wants to emulate. So we will um, learn about Greg's operation, I think, dip into a lot of other issues as well. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, Nate. It's an honor to be on. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. Like one of the great things about when I get to, you know, host is picking people's brains and just learning because I am, you know, uh, farming uh, cattle and very much in the learning stage. So I, I love this opportunity to pick people's brains about you know, what they're doing, what works, what hasn't. And I think we'll get into a lot of food system issues today too, because that seems like a a real source of common issues and a important thing to talk about. But to start with, um, my understanding just, just from following you on Twitter is that your operation is largely sheep and pig. And maybe that's true. Um, uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there in, you said, Northeast Indiana? Sure. Yeah, let me let me give you the short version of our story. The um, I grew up on the next road over. Uh, my family still owns the land. Uh, my dad and brother still farm that. Uh, but I grew up on a diversified crop and livestock farm. Uh, we raised uh, um, pastured pigs, uh, finished some cattle, a uh, whole host of crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa, um, and uh, through the years when there was uh, still a lot of independent family farms, uh, went off to, um, and we should talk about this later, went off on a um, trip with the FFA and the Young Farmers of the United Kingdom uh, to England after I graduated for, uh, spent the summer over there for three months, stayed on 11 different uh, um, family farms, uh, two of which uh, were making their living in 1988 direct marketing. I thought it was absolutely crazy, nuts. I uh, sent a letter home to mom to tell her that even. Uh, she probably still has the letter, uh, but uh, went off to the land grant university, got a degree in agricultural economics, uh, come back home, knew I wanted to raise pigs for the rest of my life. Uh, shortly after that in 94, dad said that the hog market for the small independent guy was done. I said, I didn't want to quit raising pigs. Uh, so we ended up buying my, um, parents sow herd and my wife and I went off on my on our own and sell, selling and uh, raising uh, pigs raised on pasture but selling them into the commodity market it was actually a decent living until 1997. In 1998 I found out my dad was right. Uh, hog market crashed. Uh, there was no longer a market for the small independent in the commodity. Uh, we lost every bit of equity that we had gained and uh, sold live pigs uh, for less than what my grandpa sold them for in the depression, we netted as low as five cents a pound. I still said I didn't want to quit. Uh, um, you know, I thought back of the, that summer I spent in England. Uh, you could just start to pick up the um, newspapers and see that uh, guys like uh, Bill Nyman out on the West Coast was selling to um, Alice Waters at Shape and Ease. Uh, guys like John Jameson on the East Coast was starting to sell to the Watergate and a few places into New York. You could see it in a few of the magazines and the newspapers. And I told my wife, this is going to happen in the United States. It's never going to get as big as Europe, but it's going to happen. And we're going to make a living getting our pigs processed 
and sending them to chefs in Chicago. My wife and my sister, the only people on the planet in 1998, didn't think I was absolutely nuts. Um, and But we did it anyways. Um, uh, our financial situation actually got worse for a while, uh, which I don't know how it could have got much worse. But uh, um, we sent my uh, youngest daughter, or my oldest daughter, uh, when she was in kindergarten, we sent her for a field trip uh, with uh, change to pay for a field trip, uh, used um, uh, cash to pay for kerosene to keep uh, brooders uh, lit or warm uh, when we couldn't pay the propane bill. But uh, the whole thing uh, gained some traction and uh, um, we got some momentum. And had we filled out the paperwork in 2011, uh, we would have been on Inc.'s uh, 5,000 list for one of the fastest growing uh, independent companies in the um, country. Um, you know, and so we built a USDA inspected processing plant on the farm. Uh, we raise um, pastured pigs. Uh, we raise some grass-fed lambs. Uh, we raise a little bit of poultry still. We used to have a um, sizable pastured chicken operation, but the only uh, poultry we're doing right now is uh, pastured turkeys, and we will get back into um, pastured ducks. But uh, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, love to talk about that. And, uh, love to also talk about some of the advocacy work and the food system works that uh, both you and I talk about on a regular basis. Um, can I jump in real quick and ask a clarifying question? So for those people who don't know much about like agri agricultural history in the U.S. or whatever, why, why in 1998 was there no longer a market? Like what was happening there? Um, maybe we could start. I, t I tend to like to okay. yep. the podcast in the direction of let's start with the doom. Let's lay out how bad things are and then we'll turn towards the optimism. So what? What was happening there? Um, yeah. You know, agriculture in the United States, and for those of us that understand it out here in rural America, I guess that, that's a great question because it does seem obvious to us. But agriculture um, industrialized and consolidated. It started with the um, laying hens, uh, went to the broiler chickens, uh, the fat cattle, and then the um, hogs were the um, uh, next thing. And, you know, it went from a model where there were 600,000 independent family farms raising pigs in the United States uh, to a model we have today where there's 60,000 um, hog farmers, uh, where 30 farms own about 75% of the pigs and most of the people that have hogs on their farm don't even own them. They have the um, manure, the um, mortalities and the mortgage on the barn. Um, you know, so... Uh, the hog industry went through a very, very rapid consolidation where guys figured out that uh, they didn't have to just raise a few. They could uh, stuff them in barns, uh, get um, all kinds of hired help uh, from everywhere imaginable um, and feed them all kinds of antibiotics and raise shitloads, excuse my language, but bunches of pigs. Uh, and, um, and the industry went from a independent family farm model um, to a, um, you know, agriculture doesn't like it, but it's a corporate controlled, uh, if not corporate owned, but it's definitely corporate controlled uh, model. And it did that in the hog industry almost overnight. And, uh, you know, when you get concentration and consolidation to the level that you have in the livestock and poultry industry, uh, you know, there were some uh, mitigating factors. You got uh, um, 
Tyson, which was had just bought IBP, uh, they bought up two packing plants when we were already really, really tight on having enough places to get pigs processed in the United States. They bought up Thornapple Valley in Detroit, which could process 13,000 hogs a day. They bought uh, Huron pork in the Dakotas, which could do six, 7,000 a day. And they closed them, had no intentions of running them when they knew good and well that there was already too many hogs in the country. And the hog market uh, went from one where we personally could uh, call and take pigs to 14 different buying stations or auctions in the morning. Uh, could know what we were getting uh, for them, except for at the auctions, know what the price was. Uh, overnight, it went from being able to do that to we could call three places and they'd tell us which date we could bring them in, uh, but they wouldn't tell you what the price was. Oh. Uh, so the market disappeared literally overnight. And hog farmers uh, that were small, independent, weren't big enough to get a um, uh, production contract with the Packers, uh, they had no choice but to quit. Uh, they lost every bit of equity that they had, and it did it overnight. The Lots of the other industries that consolidated, it was a more slow and uh, painful death. I always argue that the guys that finished uh, fat cattle, uh, they didn't really know when it was over. Uh, the guys that uh, dairy, they know it's over, but they ju it's just a lot of small little cuts rather than one. In the hog industry, we knew when it was done. They shut the lights off and told us to go home. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. So in short, the, the industry consolidated to the point that the smaller producers just simply couldn't compete. They just couldn't get in. They couldn't process their animals. They couldn't make enough to make a living on it. Right, um, yep. right. But, I, but I'd argue that... Uh, you know, and there's a lot of that argument on Twitter, but the um, small and smaller becomes something that uh, is really, really difficult to define in agriculture. Because I think the last USDA survey was 14 percent of the hogs were actually owned and raised by independent uh, family farms. And I, I'm sure it's significantly less now because of COVID. And the statistic I just threw out there was that um, 30 farms uh, and I don't, it's I really have a hard time calling them farms, but I mean, I guess. There are 30 farms or 30 corporations, the largest of which is Smithfield, a um, Chinese-owned corporation. But those 30 farms own about 75% of the hogs. Yeah. So we went from the small independents to even the large independents no longer have a place. It's the same as the chicken industry. There are no independent chicken farmers in this country. The eggs aren't a lot better. Uh, 200 uh, farms in this country raise 90 some percent of the eggs mm -hmm. uh, when you put, you know, one to 12 million hens on each individual farm and you only have a hen per person in the United States, because that's about what egg consumption needs are. You know, you can do the rough math. You got 300 and some million people and you got a couple million uh, hens on a farm. You only have a couple hundred farms have almost all the chickens. Pigs are getting the same way. Uh, the current uh, scale of hog operations uh, we'll have about 800 farrowing sites in the United States at 6,000 to 10,000 sows per farrowing site. You can do the rough math. Uh, this country processes 100 million and change in pigs a year. Um, it only takes 800 farms of that scale to raise all of the pigs in the United States. That We, we went too far. The pendulum has went too far in that. Yeah, I was curious about so these eight hundred sites that you, that you're talking about. There's so many places to drill in, but I, first, I guess, describe some of the problems that might be associated with a site of that scale. You know, you you've got all kinds of uh, 
hidden uh, risks and hidden costs in an agriculture that gets to that scale. Uh, you know, the obvious one is that uh, you take the I states. Uh, we we have a, a, a huge problem in the I states uh, with our rivers and lakes aren't fit for um, people to, um, you know, enjoy. Uh, they're all um, have way too much uh, fertilizer and manure in uh, and the more you concentrate manure, uh, the more potential you have for it to end up in the wrong places. It's just a higher risk uh, when you put lots of it in one location. Uh, you also have uh, air um, quality issues. Uh, you got hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, there's several others uh, that um, leave these um, facilities and agriculture because it's been independent family farms and I'm not advocating for regulations, but independent, but agriculture because it's been independent family farms has always had a, um, you know, good rapport with the public and has got some really, really good exemptions uh, to all kinds of uh, rules on the production side uh, for the, um, you know, Clean Water Act, Clean Air, um, issues, you know, so there's people that live beside these. That's not just odors, but it's also, uh, you know, health, potential health problems when you put that many animals together. Uh, you put that many animals together and you're just once again creating all kinds of risks for superbugs, you know, resistant uh, bacteria uh, that, you know, we see what happens when we let uh, microbiology out into um, society. It's not uh, necessarily a good thing for uh, it takes a lot, lots of years to um, straighten that back out. And well, let me we let me let me add in here too to to put a finer point on it because I think that's really important. Is you know now you have these um, you know thousands of animals, and then we use the same antibiotics on those animals that we use on us, right? So we are so you're creating sort of an opportunity with thousands and thousands of animals for their, um, you know, immune, you know, for the uh, bugs essentially to adapt to the very antibiotics that we depend on. Right. So we're right. creating, we are creating antibiotic resistant bacteria that's uh, oh. in those places for sure. Oh, exactly. And, you know, and when you stop and think about it, the whole system is 180 degrees different than what we would do out on a regenerative farm where, you know, you get uh, um, seasonal production, which can break disease cycles. You get uh, UV light, which, uh, you know, just the sun, uh, you get time, uh, you get a whole host of biodiversity uh, that you don't have. You know, those sites are um, shower in facilities because uh, they don't want to bring anything in there. Uh, they try to keep it sterile, but we know that uh, trying to do things sterile uh, with live animals, uh, that doesn't work. Um, you know, so once something's in there, it's, you know, got mm -hmm. easily spread. You know, the there's risks and uh, disadvantages and advantages to all kinds of production systems. When you raise animals outside uh, where they're spread out, you know, their social distance uh are there other, <laughs> they really are there's yeah. there's other there's other challenges with that uh but there are also some you know nature can either be really cool or it can be really cruel and mm. you know the um uh the best uh models are those where people really put some good management into it and then cooperate with nature and these uh 6000 to 10000 sow facilities where the animals never get to express any of their natural instincts, never see the dirt, never see sunshine. Um, you know, it's just, 
it's not right, first of all. Um, but, you know, it, it's so, like I said, 180 degrees different than what you and I would think about when we think mm-hmm. of how we're going to cooperate with nature to produce something that's healthy and as nutritious as possible. Yeah, that's the that's that's a great frame, you know, cooperating with nature versus, you know, I think that the the model that is being used in agricultural now is like really, you know, competing with nature. It's it's sort of trying to wrest, you know, control from nature um, and and talking about uh, cooperative um, relationship with it, I think is important. Um, a couple of other things I wanted to unpack with that you said at the end, and, I, you know, as a person who sounds like you've loved pigs your whole life. Um, and I think one of the you mentioned at the end, but one of the hugest things with these um, hog farms is is the issues of animal welfare. Uh, I wanted you wanted to say a little bit more about that because I think it's tremendously uh, uh, disturbing. Well, you know, I think if uh, everyone got to see behind the um, curtain on the um, uh, production side and the processing side. Um, you know, I've got some friends in the meat business that tell people, oh, tell me that you don't want people to see that. And I'm like, I actually think I do. Um, I think people would eat less meat, but I think that they would respect it a lot more. Uh, you know, I I think no matter what religion, and I don't want to get too religious on this here, but um, I think no matter what religion that you follow, I think that, you know, um, animals were put here uh, to be used, but they weren't put here for us to just completely dominate them and you know i i have problems and i get the um animal rights people upset the same as i get the production uh people upset because i don't think that we should ever assign uh human uh rights to an animal they're an animal uh they don't uh need human rights but i do think that they have certain instincts uh that we should allow them to express and a pig should be able to get to stick its nose in the ground a pig should be able to build a nest to be able to have little ones pigs should be able to go outside uh be in the um sunlight uh there's certain things that it does you know and we've felt that way for a long long time i think that uh our last animal welfare approved audit uh we're number 27 uh for the farms that have ever signed up for animal welfare approved in the United States, I think they're on 4,000 now. Uh, so, um, you know, but having said all that, um, uh, you know, and we've, we've been involved in the animal welfare uh, movement for a couple of decades. Um, I do have to acknowledge that I don't think it's a, a really, really big market in the United States. People talk about it a lot, um, but I don't think it's the biggest um, selling point. Uh, you know, we sell to mostly to upscale restaurants and a few um, upscale um, retailers. And, yeah, they like to know that. Um, but I think that um, uh, either the um, quality of your food or the nutrition of your food are the um, selling points of yeah. products. Uh, I don't think animal welfare is a big selling point in the United States. And it's a shame uh, because it should be. And, you know, as an affluent and prudent society um we ought to treat our animals better and we ought to treat our farmers better and our farm workers better but uh um we don't and i'm i'm to the point anymore i'm not beating my head against the wall trying to get that to be the selling point because i don't think it is yeah i I would just let me just hop in real quick i just think on this podcast, we tend to to occupy that. It seems like a niche philosophical space, even though it shouldn't be niche. It's like 
neither are we with the vegans who kind of want to humanize animals or so out of touch with nature that they like they basically are are just taking animal rights to an extreme point um whereas if you're ever uh, interacting with animals or have domesticated animals you understand that it's there's a different kind of relationship they're not humans they're they're animals it's it's a different uh, type of species with a different, you know, kind of instinct, like you were saying, but neither are we okay with treating animals like a cog in a factory, you know, so it's like these two extremes seem like they're in opposition to each other, but we're like this third thing that just thinks, you know, animals are, are okay to be eaten, but they're meant to be treated respectfully as animals, which I feel like was the way it, people thought about animals for most of human history. It's really only now that it's like these two extremes that are both pretty out of touch with like how animals actually act there go ahead you go ahead, Nate. Go ahead Greg. No. Oh, okay. they're they're extremely out of touch but uh you know i almost feel like that uh today in the united states i don't think we get to talk about that much uh the conversations that are had around animals uh the production the consumption how much we're going to consume uh those are immediately Yes or no questions. Mm -hmm. They're never, how are we going to raise the animals? Yeah. How much of it are we going to consume? In what fashion are we going to consume it? Uh, none of those questions. How are we going to process it? it? And we need to have those discussions because this conversation is much more nuanced. And you guys are 100% spot on. This is much more nuanced than um, we're not going to eat animals or um, uh, we're going to raise them however the hell we want. Yep. I often talk about uh, um, the, I call it the dumbest debate on the internet, the, <laughs> the vegetarian slash vegan versus meat. Like it's the dumbest debate on the internet because, because it happens in this overly simplified way. And it never, it, it rarely actually gets into um, that, the meat of the issue, no pun intended. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, because it is subtle and it is, you know, my wife and I were, vegetarian for not vegan but we were vegetarian for 12 years and i feel like that's a lot of the people you're talking about greg who are interested in animal welfare um they're not a big market for you because the, that those people go generally to just being vegetarian they just stop eating meat rather than you know buy humane meat um and part of that actually is sort of rational to a degree because um such a huge as you point out such a huge percentage of meat is produced in this way that, you know, if somebody abstains from that system altogether, I totally respect that, you know, right. like I, I, you know, like fine, good. That's, that's a great choice. Um, but I think then you have this, uh, these different production systems that, that we're trying to, uh, that we are um, putting in place and, you know, respecting animal welfare and ecology and trying to grow. And of course we need support to do that. Um, uh, and uh, I think it's a, it's a more complicated and difficult story to tell. Like if you're a person who loves animals, it's pretty easy to just be like, yeah, I don't eat animals. Like it's a very, that makes sense. You see the horrors of uh, modern ag, you know, you see that and you are correctly revolted um, by, by some of the extreme practices you see there. Um, but then it's like, well, I don't eat animals and it, it makes the story really simple. And, you know, um, but I think talking about the relationship between uh, humans and animals, um, and the, the the respect, you know, and care sort of that's required to do it well, but also the need for the land and for people to um, have animals in, in, in this capacity, you know, like humans, you know, eat meat, 
um, and uh, ecology needs um, needs animals on it. You know, around where I'm at, you you absolutely need to have um, you know animals. You you need to have ruminants on the land. Yeah. Why, why don't we hear the Greg Gunthorpe? Let's say okay. Let's do a theoretical listener, uh, vegetarian or vegan for environmental uh, animal welfare reasons. Let's hear the Greg Gunthorpe case for eating sustainable or regenerative meat to that potential audience member. Oh man, that that's an excellent question. Um, and uh, I will say that one, uh, you guys should get my um, son, Evan, on uh, the podcast sometime because uh, he's really good at uh, We'll go out to events. You know, we've been at the outstanding in the field events and uh, we've been at different uh, dinners with some of the um, chefs in Chicago and all that. And uh, he's really good about, uh, you know, laying out the story of what we do on the farm and convincing people. Uh, I think the longest was uh, 12 years uh, um, vegetarian that uh, had some of our duck once, uh, you know, but um, I'm probably not the greatest person that, uh, um, doing that, uh, you know, I, I, my argument would be uh, people really need to come out and see our farm. Uh, and I've told people this before, and I always just get the deer in the headlight look, so I don't think it's probably the correct uh, argument. But um, I tell people, uh, you know, you should come out, look at our pigs, uh, see the sows, uh, farrow in the huts out in the woods, um, uh, see the little pigs running around. Um, you know, they. They have one bad day on the farm uh, when they come up to the processing plant. And we've done a thousand things, uh, little things to make it so that they don't even realize that, you know, the holding pens uh, are the um, same shelters as what they have out in the field. Their waters are the same. Uh, they never get a um, traumatic uh, long ride in a um, truck with other pigs, uh, you know. So, I mean, our, our experience is ideal as you can get from an animal welfare standpoint. And I honestly believe that if our pigs had a choice of to um, live their life on our farm, knowing that uh, they were going to end up as human food or not, I think our pigs would choose to live their life. I mean, I would. Um, so, I mean, uh, and then uh, as far as the regenerative aspect, um, and people could do this just by pulling up Google Earth, uh, but if they came out and seen the farm, uh, we need ruminants back on the um, land. We have about a thousand sheep running around the farm. And uh, what ruminants do with um, adaptive multi-paddock grazing with pulse grazing where you let the grass go up and then you take it back down. Uh, what that does for um, adding organic matter, sequestering carbon, uh, increasing water infiltration, uh, lowering runoff. Um, our lands were uh, evolved to have ruminant animals on and the idea of taking them off and just letting those go back to the wild. That's the craziest notion I've ever heard. And uh, so um, I probably would offend them because I probably have to tell them that's the craziest notion I've ever heard. Uh, all you got to do is, uh, you know, uh, pull up Google earth, uh, look at our place. We're just uh, South of uh, Mongo, Indiana at the corner of uh, state road three and us 20. It doesn't take uh, understanding regenerative certifications. It doesn't take understanding industrialized agriculture. Uh, you can pick it up with the satellite map on what, where our farm starts and where the, um, uh, you know, I like to call it the green desert or the um, corn and soybean wasteland where it starts. 
the I states, uh, you, you can pick out the regenerative yeah. farms. And we, we need animals to be able to do that. Uh, it's literally not possible without adaptive multi-paddock grazing, uh, regenerative ag uh, needs animals integrated. Uh, whether you consume those or not, whether you just stick with the uh, milk products or whether you don't have any of them, uh, I'd argue that um, the um, vegans should actually be our some of our um, biggest supporters and they should be arguing for um, yeah. regenerative agriculture of ruminant animals and true adaptive multi-paddock grazing, holistic grazing, whatever you want to call it. So that's a, a great point. And obviously I'm uh, completely on board with that. I'm curious to hear how pigs fit into this, right? Because pigs totally different. So the, the, the short version is ruminants have multiple stomachs. So they eat stuff that humans can't eat. They can, you know, graze, you know, a cow will go out, a sheep will go out and eat grass, eat forbs, eat, you know, browse, and they'll eat things that we can't eat. And they have multiple stomachs. They can to digest it over time and 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 you know take non-human food and turn it into human food pigs don't do that so how how do how do pigs fit into the regenerative uh scheme yeah, yeah that that's a great question and you know the um uh i'll i'll say first of all i'm a pig farmer grew up a pig farmer i'll always be a pig farmer uh and you know it's in my blood and it's what i know and it's what i know best um but uh, pigs, um, I have a hard time when people start talking about pigs and regenerative. Uh, I think the, uh, the sow herd, the gestating sow herd, uh, could be a regenerative operation. Uh, we've actually developed a means where we run them in a leader follower system behind our sheep. Uh, so our gestating sows are foraging animals. Uh, on a the only feed that we take them is still a high forage diet so uh but as far as um uh, pigs uh and poultry both um i think uh, the ideal um situations they need to be a component in a um grass and or crop system uh growing up our pigs were part of the rotation on a 600 acre diversified crop and livestock farm that's the ideal place for pigs uh, we come up against the really, really hard wall of uh, access to capital um, and access to land uh, for people to be able to do that. Because uh, in my mind, ideally, uh, we'd have three, four times as many acres and our pigs would be part of the rotation. Uh, that would be the ideal situation. Uh, I don't have that much uh, land nor that much money to have that much land. Uh, can't rent it uh, away from, you know, that comes back to our food system issues with the whole, we can't compete against corn and soybeans and their uh, subsidized crop insurance and their um, guaranteed market and their guaranteed ethanol mandate and all that. Uh, but, you know, uh, pigs and poultry, and uh, I get into some arguments on Twitter on that too, because uh, if you look at it, um, uh, and I, I'm not sure I completely agree with the math on it, but uh, I can understand where they're coming from. If you look at the math, uh, they'll tell you when you start talking about industrial production, uh, pigs and poultry, because they have a much better feed efficiency, have a lower carbon footprint. Uh, but, you know, the math has got to get really, really fuzzy. And I think what Grandpa's statement always was, uh, figures lie and liars figure. Uh, but, you know, if, uh, if you get the math, uh, just just right, it can make it look like uh, pigs and poultry 
are better from a um, climate standpoint than ruminant animals. But we never really compare ruminant animals in the ideal system where they're actually on adaptive multi-paddock grazing as a grass-fed animal. We're comparing them to a feedlot where, yeah, the um, cattle eat six pounds of feed instead of two or three pounds of feed, put a pound of gain on. Mm. Let's put them out on grass where they're sequestering carbon, they're increasing water infiltration, they're actually uh, reducing the things that cause, uh, you know, climate problems. And then we're not talking apples to oranges, you know, and uh, cattle and sheep and, uh, you know, ruminant animals are a lot better for the um, climate. And I'm a pig farmer. We raise pigs and poultry. And I think if you're going to eat pigs and poultry, uh, that they should be pasture raised animals. Uh, but I think that your diet probably should be uh, ruminant based meat. And that's hard for a pig farmer to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, I could sit down and eat pork all day long. Uh, everybody likes bacon. Uh, we got some hams that are aged three years in a cave just over here uh, that are really, really good. Uh, you know, a nice thick pork chop on the grill, um, a whole pig on the grill. I mean, pork is really, really good. Uh, yep. and it's really, really, uh, it's got lots of things you can do with it. Uh, much, much better than uh, lamb or beef in that regards. But, um, uh, but we probably should be eating more ruminants uh, that are on. And we should probably put some sows out on some uh, rotational grazing. You guys should come see them, uh, our sows uh, during the grazing season. It's really, really cool. It takes them a little them. while to get used to it, but it's it, it's neat. They'll eat, the, they'll eat grass. That's So tell me a little bit, maybe in more detail, because I'm really curious. So we get, uh, and it kind of described a little bit of the function of uh, ruminants, you know, like they eat grass and then recycle those nutrients. Um, so in any grass-based system, in any, in any grassland, you have to have ruminants to do that. What function does, like with the hogs on your farm, like what function are they serving? Like how, how like, like they're, they're eating grass, like, are they putting nutrients back? Like what, what are they consuming? Sort of what's the ecological niche that they're, you know, that they fit in, like, where do they, cause like on a big diverse, uh, you know, um, diversified farm, like those hogs are going to like, you're producing them for meat, but they're also, I imagine going to serve various functions. What kind oh, of yeah. functions do hogs serve? Um, pigs and, uh, poultry also, uh, one of the yeah. biggest functions that they can serve is, uh, you know, because they're, uh, monogastrics, you know, and this is getting back to basics that you guys both know, but, uh, you know, a ruminant, it's just basically a large fermenter and you can put roughage in there and it actually um, creates uh, energy and nutrients for the animal. Uh, you know, a monogastric, the same as like our digestive system, uh, you can't feed strictly on fiber. Uh, you know, you just plain can't get enough energy through the animal. So uh, pigs and poultry need some grain. And because you're bringing in some grain to feed them, either that or you're growing some, uh, you know, 85% of the nutrients that are in that feed uh, go out the back end of the animal. So it's a really, really good way to mm. um, bring fertility onto the farm. Uh, you know, I'd argue that's probably one of the um, biggest advantages of uh, pastured poultry is to bring uh, fertility onto, um, you know, and you also are uh, jumpstarting that microbiology in the soil. Um, so, you know, there's lots of uh, things. Uh, the one thing you have to be careful with um, pigs, uh, my son likes to call it uh, um, wrecking balls. Uh, you know, I mean, we've all seen it. Uh, um, 
pigs like to stick their nose in the ground. Yeah. And if they're not moved frequently, uh, they can be wrecking balls. And, uh, you know, my son always points out, and he's 100% correct, uh, there's a place uh, for wrecking balls. Uh, you know, you don't take wrecking balls out and tear down brand new buildings, uh, but there's a place for wrecking balls. And so, you know, uh, pastured pigs and pastured poultry as a component on a um, larger, um, you know, either grass or crop operation can play a really, really good role. Um, uh, too many pigs in one small outside area and you can have a moonscape uh, really, really quick and, you know, and it takes a while to get that to grow back. So it's all ends up being about uh, just like the others, management, uh, stocking density. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have a um, farrowing farm that's uh, 40 acres. I have a um, Facebook live that me and my daughter did on it, but uh, we've got it divided into um, 50 paddocks, uh, rotate through those. Uh, gives them a chance to um, regrow. So there's some uh, forages in there. We were re planting some mulberry trees along with it. So, um, you know, it's, uh, but it, like I said, it all comes down to um, matching that stocking density with the amount of land and uh, pigs, I think ideally really need another um, ruminant animal along with taking part of that stocking density so that you can keep the um, grass vegetative and get it established really well yeah the more i hear you talk about this the more i think of your like role as a kind of ecosystem steward you know following it and and noticing the densities and noticing what the land can handle and and managing the different kinds of animals and their ecosystem function and i think a lot of environmentalists just don't realize the extent to which regenerative farmers are like the frontline ecosystem stewards um I, I, Nate, I don't know if you have any other questions on the production uh, side, but I want to get to, so Greg's talking about a different model from the industrial production model. He's talking about his regenerative production model, but I want to talk about al the alternative processing model he has, uh, the alternative distribution model, and then maybe we can talk other, you know, subsidies and uh, antitrust and those kind of things. But Nate, I want to give you a chance to ask production questions if you want before we move on to processing. Oh man, I got a million, but, but don't take um, up the whole podcast. Right, right, right. Because I want to talk equally much about the the processing. I'm super interested in that. And we need to get to the food system and the political issues as well, for sure. Um, I guess one I guess we can end on this. I'm curious why um why you chose like why sheep are the ruminant of choice on your place. Um we chose sheep for two reasons. Uh, first of all, um, I think uh, the sheep industry, um, for the most part, especially if you're on the eastern United States and you're willing to sell the lighter lambs, uh, the sheep industry is much more competitive uh, than the um, cattle industry. Um, there's, there's still, a, um, uh, for the most part, a competitive uh, sheep market. The second reason is, that we were uh, looking long-term uh, thinking that um, we'd connect with one of the large solar companies and get a vegetation contract to be able to um, send our sheep off uh, during the growing season uh, to control grass on one of the solar sites, uh, give us a lot more opportunities to do something with the acres here during the growing season and have the sheep getting paid to um, go somewhere else, which wouldn't be an option with cattle. 
All right. One last comment uh, to clarify that a little more. Those light uh, 40 to 60 pound, what I like to call the um, Eastern uh, uh, lambs, those 40 to 60 pound fat lambs. If you look at the market over the last 10 years, uh, except for uh, one or two times, uh, those things have almost always traded for 250 to $4 a pound. Um, and those can be lambed outside and finished in the same season. So you're not taking sheep over the winter. Mm. You're not putting any grain into the things. You're not putting barns up for them, just grass. And yeah. so that, you know, that that's different than cattle. Cattle takes some more infrastructure to finish cattle. You actually have, no matter what, you got to take them over a winter in the Midwest. And, you know, and that creates some challenges. Yeah. Don't necessarily, and don't get me wrong. Sheep have their own challenges. If anybody thinks that sheep are easy to raise, they have not raised sheep. <laughs> um, okay, so let's go on to the processing. Um, I know you spoke at the beginning about the consolidated processing. I know that that's an ongoing issue, not being able to get into processors or, you know, if you're a small guy, um, it's just the scale doesn't make sense. Uh, the regulations around processing. So talk, talk us through like the the optimism of the alternative model of processing you have you have in mind sure um you know the um we built a um, usda inspected processing plan on the farm uh will be 20 years in march uh we were one of the um first in that whole game to think that we needed to build and i'm not sure that there there's a few that followed but there's not a lot that have uh, navigated those uh, hurdles yet. Uh, it, it's quite a um, complex uh, challenge. It took uh, from the time we filled out the paperwork, it took 14 months to even get USDA to come out and talk to us, not to get inspection, but to get them to come out and talk to us. And I think the um, technical resources are a lot better nowadays. Uh, you know, USDA as part of the COVID funds just actually put a fair amount of money into that uh, flower hill and the Niche Meat Processors Assistance Network uh, direct those funds, but uh, um, existing and potential processors have the opportunity to get, um, uh, you know, free consulting uh, on how to get started. Um, but, you know, the I, I think uh, processing has got to the point that uh, um, in the protein sector, um, four companies uh, control almost all the um, processing. Uh, in beef, it's uh, those four have 86%. In uh, pigs and poultry, it's uh, 50 to 70% that those four control. And, you know, my argument has always been that uh, in a capitalistic society, um, you actually have to have some controls on oligopolies and monopolies. If you want um, the producers and the small businesses to have opportunities, and you want the consumers to have true choice. Um, you know, we learned that a hundred and plus some years ago uh, with the um, Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, um, and the Packer and Stockyards Act, um, that there's a reason that you need to control consolidation when you're dealing with live animals and perishable products. We put those all up on the shelf and let them uh, gather dust. And there's still a reason if you're going to deal with live animals and perishable product, we've seen it at the beginning of COVID. They euthanized almost a million hogs and uh, they won't tell you how many um, chickens uh, because 
you know, their their industrial system is actually uh, extremely productive and efficient when it all clicks. Uh, but when it doesn't, uh, it's extremely cruel to um, animals, uh, farmers, the whole system, uh, you know, just shows a lot of cracks. Um, it, it's a lot more costly to do um, small scale processing. Uh, but, you know, the um, I, th I think it's needed as a society and we have to have um, some more uh, small um, scale uh, on farm in communities because uh, um, access to processing uh, for um, small farmers that want to um, market is a really, really uh, big challenge. I'd argue the same as a good friend of mine, Will Harris, uh, that it's not the biggest challenge, that once you actually get stuff uh, processed, uh, the bigger challenge um, is actually figuring out a means to fit into the marketplace. Um, I'd argue that nowadays, uh, virtually the only legitimate good growing market left is uh, direct to consumer. I'd argue that the wholesale end, um, you know, there, there's a few places to fit in, but it's uh, that that whole thing train is almost over. But uh, to um, build processing takes a really, really good business plan because uh, it's a um, capital management and labor intensive business and nobody in their right mind uh, would knowingly enter a business that had two of those problems let alone three of them but you did it anyways oh you know the yeah we we jumped off the cliff and we made it work um but i i would argue and i think my son and my wife and the rest of the family would um 100 agree um uh you can do things uh but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can do things that are both profitable and have a quality of life and i'd argue that uh we, we did what we did, uh, probably, um, you know, taken away from quality of life because, uh, you know, uh, we work too hard and make it work. You know, that that's a choice that a person has to make. And, you know, and, and it was an amazing journey. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. um, but but I'd argue that, um, you know, if if we could fix some of the um, uh, serious issues in the food system, I think that uh, it would be a much easier um, uh, challenge uh, for people to take on to actually build that um, uh, resilient processing that is actually needed in our society without people having to just about kill themselves off to figure out how to make it work. Right. Mm. Uh, Nate, you know, I want to toss it to you, but I just wanted to, to, um, to bring up uh, Joel Salatin had this... Um, I forget what it was called, some conference where people were sharing ideas about how they could legally, via loopholes, process their animals or sell their animals on the hoof, or they could make it part of a cooperative, or, you know, it could be like a private society with a meat locker, but you have to like, you know, these kinds of um, outlaw, I think he's something like outlaw processing, but anyways, yep. uh, it, so yeah, that, him, that was cute. Him and uh, John Moody and those guys, I... I'm yeah, I've been following what they I do. I like that kind of anarchist uh, approach to things. But Nate, did you have a follow-up? Well, I was just going to sort of riff on that. You, you know, the, um, you know, what you're talking about, the extremely efficient system. And um, just to explicitly say, you know, that comes at the cost of fragility is what you're saying. Like if it's super efficient, you know, one thing breaks down and, and you know, and, and, and the farmers bear a lot of that you know, fragility, uh, and the animals bear a lot of that fragility. Um, 
the giant corporations that profit off it don't bear the fragility. It's 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 it, you know the the fragility is borne by people lower down the chain or you know the animals themselves. But that's that's the cost of, of a system that's hyper efficient. Is and you know agriculture. I would definitely argue that agriculture shouldn't be that efficient because efficient simply means you're extracting profit from the land as efficiently as possible. And, you know, something has to go back in, you know, efficiency is dependent on these externalities that harm the land and harm the farmers and harm the animals. And so you have to have some inefficiency built into agriculture. I think, you know, you need redundancies, you need, um, you, you need things that aren't perfectly efficient uh, for abundance to actually occur. You know, abundance lives when there are inefficiencies it scrounges at the edges you know so um you know i think that we're built on this economic system that really wants efficiency and i think that's inherently at odds with um with what the land and the people and the animals actually need oh 100 it's at odds with a resilient food supply it's at odds with a extremely nutritious uh food supply it's at odds with uh um, you know, people wanting to be uh, small, um, scrappy entrepreneurs that fit in with something that's innovative. Uh, you know, it's it's at odds with the environment. You name it. It's at odds with all of that. And uh, we should change that uh, because collectively um, our food policy um, has failed for decades and it has been a large driving factor in uh, helping to allow these multinational corporations uh, to shift risks onto the farmer, um, the consumer, and the taxpayer. And that's uh, really where a lot of that efficiency comes from, is the, shiftment of, the shift of those risks uh, to somebody else. And they're really, really good at that. And that, that is one huge disadvantage that we fight as small-scale processors and as regenerative ag is that we have no means to shift those risks onto somebody else uh, because we don't have a powerful uh, lobby in Washington, D.C. that sits there and comes up with these crazy ideas of how are we going to guarantee a market for 46 percent of your corn that has no real net energy um, production, uh, but we're going to put it in cars. How are we going to guarantee that you have half a dozen ways that uh basically guaranteed gambling, uh, but you can get subsidized insurance on just about everything from your yield to your uh, revenue per acre per whatever. And then you're going to think that somebody's going to compete renting or buying land against that. It's like, no, come on. This whole system is set up to perpetuate the system that we have. The You know, the you watch now, it's starting to get a little bit of traction and a little bit of uh, news. Um uh, you know, the um, avian influenza, as well as the euthanized animals at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, we as taxpayers just paid billions uh, to these companies to take away all of their risk. Um, you know, we didn't pay a dime to, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that I support the system, but all of those contract producers with those barns and everything um, go bankrupt in those systems when they don't have animals coming in. And the corporations get paid for the loss of their animals. The system is just corrupt. Yeah. It's yeah. totally corrupt. Speaking of that, then, what what do you have in mind in terms of subsidy reform? Um, what In best case scenario, what is the, the government? Can I, 
Oh yeah, go ahead, Nate. Sorry. Can I, I think that's a great question, but I think that it would help if we had just a little more maybe foundation behind, like what are okay. the policies? So, so like, how did this happen policy-wise, the real short view and how can we go from here? Because a lot of people, um, there's a lot of resistance a lot to using policy to get out of this. You hear it all the time. It's like, well, policy, you know, like the government got us into this, the government can't get us out. Well, I, I think that that's naive. I don't think there's a way out without policy personally, but how, how did policy get us here? You know, how did uh, the, in my, the, collaboration between policy and industry kind of get us to the point we're at now and the short view. And then Ashley's question, I think building on that would, would uh, kind of be the best story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, re really, really short version. Um, and it, uh, he came out, an ag economist that came out of uh, my alma mater, uh, Purdue University, uh, grew up uh, not too far, uh, less than an hour from here. Uh, Earl Butts uh, yeah. was, was the secretary of agriculture. And, you know, there there was uh, two camps at that point, you know, this whole idea that uh, farming was a um, lifestyle or farming was a business. And Earl Butts's uh, mantra um, won out at the USDA. It was uh, get big or get out, mm. uh, you know, and it, it didn't work out for lots of farmers where they um, leveraged the farm, uh, bought more um, land. And then land prices crashed in the 80s and we had the largest farm crisis imaginable. Uh, but USDA has always had that, you know, they have the food assistance program, the SNAP and all that, uh, that um, uh, I, I think is actually the only reason that we even have a um, farm uh, bill and a farm program, uh, because that brings in the urban uh, voters and the urban interest. And then you have the um, subsidy programs, both direct and indirect. And I'd argue it's the, um, you know, it's the CFAP programs, it's the direct payments uh, to the corn, soybeans, cotton, uh, you know, all of the big commodities. Uh, but it's also the indirect, it's the 62% um, of the um, uh, insurance uh, subsidy program. So you can buy guaranteed revenue insurance, you can buy yield insurance, you can buy uh, whether it's going to rain insurance, uh, you know, it's basically uh, legalized gambling that for every dollar you put in, the government guarantees you're going to get $2 back. So the bigger you are, the more you get to gamble, the more money that you get back long term. Yeah. Uh, you know, and granted, it does come at the times when the farmers need it, and it's somewhat sensible. But none of the you know it's only those program crops it's mostly the things that go into those 60 percent of the calories that the american consumers eat that's ultra processed food high like fundamentally what is the philosoph what do you think the, is the philosophical driver of that mindset subsidize these few monocrop high calorie like high high caloric output but poor quality food like mindset. What do you think is philosophically I, happening? I, I've I've spent enough time in Washington D.C. to um, understand that um, they really think that by subsidizing this, uh, that they're guaranteeing that we have a food supply and they're guaranteeing that we feed the world. Right. Um, you know. Uh, they genuinely empty, do think that. They they genuinely do believe that. I do think if there's one good thing that came out of COVID. I do think it's that we actually get to have those conversations now that just producing empty calories and just out here making uh, the I states look like a green desert is not necessarily the um, 
best for the environment, not necessarily the best for a resilient food supply, and it's not necessarily the best for human health. And so I think we're starting to have those conversations, you know, but the um, back to Nate's point about government policy not fixing it, you know, I've spent a lot of time on advocacy work, uh, and I can understand that. But I also know that, you know, uh, changing government policy is like turning a freighter in the ocean. You have to push a long time to get the rudder to turn. And even after you get the rudder to turn, it takes a long time to turn that big ship around. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, we put a lot of effort into it. And I think that, you know, the first thing you have to do is convince them that there's actually a need for what you're asking for. And I think we're past that point. And I think COVID helped us a lot on that. You know, the they want to see small farmers. They want to see some sustainable regenerative agriculture. Uh, they want to see a better food supply. They want to see a resilient food supply. Um, but, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort because corporate ag is just pushing the whole time uh, to continue uh, this system that we have. And my argument is uh, that we need the consumers because uh, the consumers actually need to buy the food uh, that is raised, processed correctly. At the same time that we need the government to not have policies to perpetuate this current system. So I think to just say that we get, can let the government do what they're doing, the government's doing what it's doing. And we have what we have today because the government's doing what it's doing. So we have to get the government to change some. And what, what we, changes specifically do you, do you think, well, like, I, like specifically policy-wise need to happen? Specifically policy-wise, um, we need four things uh, if we want local and regional food. Uh, we need subsidy reform, and that's uh, not only the direct payments, the indirect payments, but it's also the, um, the funds that the government is spending on government procurement. Those are all tilted towards the big guy. They either need to go away or they need to be just as much tilted towards us. Um, that's uh, whichever side of the aisle or wherever you want to set. But that, that needs to change. Um, we need antitrust enforcement. Uh, we need to understand as a society um, that live animals, perishable products uh, need some kind of protection from oligopolies and monopolies because there's too much potential for abuse. If not, there's too much potential to just completely wipe out whole sectors of industry. And we need to realize that capitalism, uh, while it's a great thing, uh, capitalism needs some referees uh, mm -hmm. or else that you, you no longer have opportunities for the small businesses and producers and you no longer have choices for consumers. And we're getting dangerously to that point, not just in the United States, but globally mm -hmm. in food. And we don't want to happen in food what happened in oil. And we're getting close to that point. So we need to take care of it here before we no longer have the potential to take care of it elsewhere. Um, uh, and then we need um, truth and labeling. The um, uh, Federal Trade Commission, the USDA, uh, they need to do their job. Uh, the U.S. is one of the worst in the whole world when it comes to greenwashing. Uh, multinational corporations have co-opted virtually every viable niche that we've created, whether that's uh, domestic grass-fed, whether that's the organic label, whether that's natural, yeah. whether that's gestation crate-free. All of those you walk into the conventional grocery store you can find product that has a fancy label uh, from the multinational corporations. The ones that we're fighting against 
are the ones that are actually selling almost all of the niche product with the only change coming from their marketing and labeling department. No legitimate changes out on the production side. That has to end. uh, And I, I have some hope that USDA started that process with the product of USA. I think you guys are both uh, well aware. I'm not sure that your listeners are, but uh, um, you can bring in foreign uh, meat uh, currently, as long as you put it in the package in the United States, you can call it product of USA. That is so absolutely wrong, but that's just the tip of the iceberg on where we're wrong on uh, truth and labeling. And one of the main cornerstones of a capitalistic competitive society is you have to have some ability to have transparency in the marketplace. Um, And then we need some inspection reform Uh, and we need inspection reform both for the um, smallest uh, producers and processors that want to be exempt from the system. So food sovereignty uh, between consenting adults. And then we need um, some administrative law, some actually regulatory uh, reform so that the um, those that choose like us to operate in an inspected system, that we get our due process, that we get our first, our fourth, and our 14th amendment, that we have the right to challenge them. Uh, we have the right to um, due process, you know, all, all of the things that the constitution guarantees that an administrative bureaucratic system tends to take away from uh, the smallest. So true deregulation, the little guys actually get the chance to function uh, with a government, the littlest of them, if they want to choose to opt out of it, get to actually opt out of it. That That's what freedom and the American dream means to me. And if we, we legitimately, if we ask for those four things, we could fix those four things. And I think we could fix them in less than 10 years. I think we're started on them actually. Mm. Gunthorpe for Secretary of Ag. <laughs> how how do we how do we uh, convince you know like a like a Corn Belt senator of these? Because you know my experience up to this point is that you know the you know the politicians representing uh, farm country um, are are largely in the pockets of big ag. You know it's it's you know these are great reforms that I mean this is great and they the industry uniformly opposes all of them i'm certain so yeah what uh, are the what are the levers of power? i was going to ask that question where where do you see there are points where where we could push not not only the um uh industry um opposes these things the things that we're forced to pay into the checkoffs our trade associations Mm -hmm. and the um if you want to buy insurance in most of the rural areas, the Farm Bureau, uh, which they're a member of, ends up opposing these things. Uh, My experience, and I think it's why lots of people say that uh, to um, leave any hope for the government is uh, futile. Uh, My experience has been uh, that it takes decades of advocacy work before you build enough connections uh, to the point that uh, you get the opportunities to actually talk to the right people. Uh, You know, I got to testify at the House Judiciary Committee uh, been on uh, virtual meetings with the um, uh, commissioners at the Federal Trade Commission, have met the, um, lawyers for antitrust at the DOJ. Uh, but I have good working relationships with uh, uh, some of those uh, senators and uh, congressmen in uh, some of the I states. But I, you know, started working with some of them when they were, uh, you know, 
representatives at state houses, not at the um, uh, federal level, uh, you know, and then you, you, it takes years. And that's why I say it's that, uh, and it takes more of us. Uh, we have to have, uh, you know, we have to be aggressive, but we have to be uh, civil or uh, somewhat reasonable. And I mean, it's, uh, and that, that's, a fine line you know i probably pushed the aggressive uh, i i hound on them at times uh and i think we got a hound on the um bureaucrats uh too i i spend a fair amount of my time and resources helping some small processors uh where usda uh food safety inspection service just flat out abuses their um due process and i um, am able to do that because of uh, largely because of uh, Congressman Massey. Um, he's really, really good at standing up to um, USDA uh, when they don't act in the manner that they're supposed to. Uh, we have a few uh, true statesmen up in Washington, D.C., and I'd argue we have a few on both sides of the aisle um, that, you know, people can build connections with them. And if our government's out of control, uh, they'll do everything in their power to try to put them back in control. Uh, but our system is really, really messed up in that uh, uh, those kind of people uh, tend to not get elected very easily. Um, our system tends to just elect people that are really good at uh, raising money. And yeah. uh, I don't know how I, I don't know how we fix that. I mean, campaign finance reform and all right. that. Who, uh, who are into that? I wonder if you'd name. Name some names. Like, who are the friends of uh, regenerative agriculture? Who are the friends of food system reform um, are, that are out there um, right now? Uh, you know, Congressman Massey, for sure. Uh, um, Senator Lee. Um, uh, Rand Paul. Um, our own uh, senator in Indiana. Um, senator Braun. Um, uh, you know, you go to the other side of the aisle. You got... Um, uh, Bernie, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Booker. Um, we have quite a few that, um, uh, you know, uh, Senator Markey, uh, Congresswoman Adams, uh, Congresswoman Jay Paul. I mean, there's a long list. Uh, and like I said, I, the list got a lot longer uh, after COVID and the list for me, uh, for people that have uh, valuable uh, discussions with got a lot, lot longer after I mm -hmm. testified at the House Judiciary Committee. Um, but, you know, when when we lay out our message and people actually get a chance to listen to it or people come out to the farm and see it, it's really a difficult message for people to just say, oh, that Greg's crazy because <laughs> the message actually makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. I mean, how do you argue with that? We need a resilient agriculture. We still need an agriculture that, um, you know, fits in our communities and produces food, uh, does it in a manner that, you know, doesn't smell up the whole communities, doesn't pollute the waterways, uh, produces the most nutrient dense food possible. And then you actually show them that, hey, we're doing this and we're doing it at a scale that uh, we've sold as much as a million pounds of uh, meat and poultry in a year. So this is not some wild pie in the sky idea. We actually do it. And, you know, you tell them that for enough years and they're like, hey, you guys said this can't be done. I just talked to Greg. He said he's doing it. What's wrong with you people? You know, so I mean, you know, because don't get me wrong. We go in and talk to them and 
as soon as they close the door, the Farm Bureau or the National Cattlemen's Beef Association or whatever, they're coming in the door saying, oh, don't listen to Greg. He's a nutcase, you know, yeah. but, but, you know, they've seen it. So they can't 100% think I'm completely, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a nutcase, <laughs> but not completely. So, You know, I, I, I'm curious before we wrap up here, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, like uh, we talked about policy and you know how like it just tilts the playing field. Um, but the other part is, uh, you know, is consumers, you know, we got, you, you have to be able to sell uh, the products that we're growing, you know, regeneratively that we're uh, farming differently. You have to be able to sell those. And so part of that's, you know, reaching consumers, marketing, consumer education, things like that. And I'm curious what you'd say to, say like a you know a consumer who might you know say something like you know food i you know, i just you know it, it's just got to be as cheap as possible um all this you know regenerative stuff is kind of just sort of uh yuppie elitist stuff and um you know why why should consumers pay more i mean you know like how it we just need to think about the bottom line and just need to we just need cheap to, food to be as cheap as possible you know the um we're just finally starting to make the connections uh, between how food is raised and how the um, health of our whole society. Um, you know, we on our farms have no problem, uh, you know, correlating what our diet is for our animals to the overall health of our flock. Um, our society's finally starting to come to that realization. You know, I tell people, uh, well, it's only been about the last 20 years uh, that we even realized uh, that science even realized that stress had an impact on our health. Uh, you know, but uh, you look at our um, uh, health care costs in the United States. Uh, we have a health care system that uh, neither individuals, businesses or the government can afford. And a large driving factor in why we can't afford that is that uh over 60% of the calories in the average American diet is ultra processed food. It's refined carbohydrates. We have 100 million people in this country that are pre-diabetics because of our food supply. And if you took the USDA food pyramid and you flipped it upside down, you could legitimately label it on the top of it, the food subsidy pyramid. Yeah. We 100% subsidize the wrong things empty calories, entirely the wrong empty calories. And as a society, um, we have the cheapest food as a percentage of our um, you know, income in the world, but we have the highest healthcare costs. And those two, there's not just correlation, there's causation there. Um, we need to feed people better and we need to start with uh, producing nutrient dense food and start throwing out some of these empty refined carbohydrates. So regenerative agriculture plays a huge, huge part in a huge role in uh, fixing our food supply. And uh, don't get me wrong, part of your um, question is very, very legitimate there. Um, you know, when you raise animals where you're not able to, um, you know, have hidden costs that you've shifted to someone else, when you process things at small scale by hand, uh, humanely, without all of that, you know, millions of dollars worth of automation, and you deliver it to people at small scale without those huge elaborate distribution systems, 
food costs more. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but there's a lot of people in this society um, that could afford to choose uh, food that was better for them uh, rather than a huge, huge um, health care um, bill. And our government um, could choose to um, purchase some food uh, that was better for everyone rather than the lowest level of food in our country is not commodity food in our country. The lowest level of food in our country is the government procurement uh, food that's even a level below the quality of commodity. And that's wrong. We shouldn't be feeding our um, young kids, our elderly and our military the lowest quality food in the country. Mm -hmm. That's an ethical issue. Mm -hmm. And that's just flat out wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, to end up, I'm wondering if you can talk us th talk through the, the listener. What what can they do to find legit re regenerative producers to purchase from? Uh, to get involved politically at all? To just pay attention to the debate? Um, you know, what as a as a regular person, what are they? You know, what what can they do to get involved to like shift this forward in a positive way? Um, as a regular um, uh, consumer, um, I would challenge you um, to do uh, one of two things, or actually probably both of them. Uh, um, buy all the food that you can directly from a farmer um, so that you can ask them questions uh, so that you can go out and uh, look at their farm. Uh, you know, there, there's a few exceptions, but in general, almost all of the um, stuff at the grocery stores is uh, greenwashed and is not at the um, level of regenerative that you could buy directly from a farmer. Um, and the um, second thing, uh, do some homework, uh, do some research. Uh, if you're at the grocery store, um, uh, take down that name. Uh, nowadays, it's not that difficult to find out whether that um, certification on that has any actual meaning or not. Um, it's also not that difficult uh, to go on to um, uh, Google Earth. And like I said before, uh, you don't have to be a um, certifier for a, some kind of uh, regenerative label to be able to look on Google Earth and tell whether you think that person is a regenerative operation or whether it's some factory in the city. Um, and if they're not willing to show you the farm or tell you the address of where the stuff's coming from, uh, there's probably a reason. So, um, you know, nowadays we have the tools if you actually want to um, figure out uh, what kind of food you're actually putting in your body. So that that's the first step. Uh, the second step is that um, I think whichever side of the um, uh, political um, aisle that you end up uh, being on, I think you got to stay engaged. Uh, with your um, representatives, uh, with your senators. Um, uh, I'd argue that we need to um, make sure that we keep pointing out to them uh, that um, we have some regulatory agencies that regardless of who is in charge, uh, we need politically unbiased people in them. Uh, you know, and right now, um, I'd give some a uh, couple uh, really, really good examples uh, where um, uh, one of them has been there from before this administration and gets virtually 100 um, uh, percent um, approval, uh, probably won't continue because he's probably made some big companies upset. But, you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, Rohit Chopra, um, 
that's an excellent example of somebody uh, that regardless of political party, uh, you know, he's actually uh, believes in the whole idea that we need safeguards, but that small um, businesses uh, need some exemptions. That's the kind of uh, um, people we need in charge of agencies. Uh, the um, Federal Trade Commission with Lena Khan's the same way now. Um, I'd even argue that uh, USDA Food Safety Inspection Service, uh, Paul Kicker, the current administrator, um, uh, much better choice than the last one that ended up taking a job at uh, JBS for five million dollars after he retired. You know that we we need to root out those kind of corruption, and we need to put unbiased uh, people, and we need more people telling them because uh, you know our Congress and senators don't just do it. Uh, we we have four levels of government now, and we need to really really make sure that they're keeping an eye on that fourth level, the um, bureaucracy uh, that Congress is doing its job of policing them. And if we had more people telling them all that. And then I have a Facebook uh, page uh, that we like to talk about politics on. It's called Politics from the Pastures. Um, join it. Uh, love to talk about any issue, regardless of your political um, persuasion. I actually believe that there's a strong need for um, a progressive and a fiscally responsible um, parties in this uh, United States. And I think that we need all people to be able to have these civil, uh, but yet complicated discussions because it's a lot more nuanced than just yes or no on all of this stuff. And I just ask people get involved because uh, we can take this country back. And I do not jokingly at all say that I think that the um, we start taking this country back by uh, changing the food supply and making rural America vibrant again. Uh, that's that's where it's got to start. It really does. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is an this is a wonderful conversation. We're we I've, both of us have followed your work for a while, so we're gonna try to find a time to come see your operation. It would be be super great. Yeah, I'd love oh. to visit. Love to have you visit. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.